What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's January 26, 1983. Stephen Sinclair recently came to London from Scotland with no return ticket. Sinclair is a troubled young man who has been in and out of institutions since he was a teenager and lately was arrested for stealing from a hostel. Even with an upcoming court date looming, Sinclair spends the evening near one of London's cruising spots, places where young gay men can find a hookup. He stands five foot five and sports many tattoos. It isn't long before a tall man in oversized glasses approaches Sinclair. The man is attractive, well-dressed, and affable. After some time, they decide to go for drinks. They stay out well into the night, and Sinclair eventually becomes tired. The two head back to the man's apartment. Once inside, Sinclair indulges in drugs and, dazed from narcotics and alcohol, passes out. Sinclair never wakes up again. Two weeks later, on February 8th, a plumbing engineer arrives at an apartment in Cranley Gardens, London, to investigate some blocked drains. Neighbors have complained about unusual smells coming from the drain cover by the side of the property. As the engineer removes the cover, he already knows it's not the usual stench that comes from plumbing pipes. And they found what looked like bits of flesh. Nilsson suggested that could be somebody had flushed their Kentucky Fried Chicken out or something like that, and that would be the explanation for little bones and flesh. The engineer pulls out large pieces of flesh and bones. It could only be one thing. He said it is, it's human. He would get rid of the bones and other bits of the organs by flushing them down the loo. It sounds in many ways like a very dark horror film. Police traced the pipes back to the attic apartment of 27-year-old Dennis Nilsson. And as they go inside, the smell hits them in the face. The cabinets are full of plastic garbage bags. And inside the plastic bags? And you could smell immediately the um, decomposing flesh. And I just pushed my face a little bit nearer to his and said, don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? And he said, okay, it's in plastic bags in the front bedroom. He'd been discovered, and the evidence was damning. But what Dennis Nilsson had gotten away with for years was shocking. So I drove the car back, and he popped the question to Nielsen, are we talking here about one body or two? And Nielsen said, neither. He said, I think it's 15 or 16. There were a dozen more victims, many of whom have never been identified. And there was a second house of horrors. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. 
In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Dennis Nilsson, the Muswell Hill murderer. In February 1983, Dennis Nilsson sat in a cell in England's criminal court, the Old Bailey, awaiting trial. The facts surrounding his arrest were picked up by the Daily Mirror and caught the public's attention, as well as the attention of author Brian Masters. Like everybody else, I read in the newspaper that the man had been arrested. It was obviously going to be a very interesting case. There was a likelihood that somebody might write about it in a sensational way. Masters was intrigued by Nilsson, and he felt the story needed a more serious look than what the newspapers would write. So Masters sent a letter to Nilsson as he was awaiting trial. I didn't know that you weren't allowed to write to a prisoner awaiting trial on a murder charge. So I wrote to him in innocence, complete ignorance, really, and said that I am interested in the case in which you find yourself involved. And I would like to do a study of it, but I would not do so without your cooperation and permission. And surprisingly, he heard back. Nielsen agreed to cooperate with Masters as his biographer. His first letter to me, the first out of about 2,000, said, Dear Mr. Masters, I pass the burden of my life onto your shoulders. Dennis Andrew Nilsson was born on November 23, 1945, in Fraserburgh, Scotland. The village in the northeastern part of the country is an old fishing town with traditional Christian values and ancestry dating back generations. After World War II, the island was also home to many Polish and Norwegian immigrants, including Dennis's father. But his father wasn't a large part of young Dennis's life, says forensic psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley. His father was was largely absent. He grew up with his his mother and his siblings and his grandparents and, and his family reformed and his mother remarried. So he had a lot of disruption. He had a lot of chaos. His father spent most of his time on other work and had little time for family. After his parents' marriage broke down, Nilsson and his two siblings spent the majority of his childhood living in the nearby village of Stricken. Nilsson reflected that even from a young age, he felt like a stranger in his family. He was isolated from an early age, and the isolation found solace in representations of people who weren't alive, like pictures in a storybook. He'd cut the picture out and take it home. That's what he liked, because that picture couldn't argue with him. It couldn't say no to him. Nielsen especially resented his mother. He said she handled him like an unpleasant object and that the tasks of caring for a child felt like a ritual. His mother has actually talked about the way that she would cuddle and have, you know, physical warmth with her other children, but she felt repelled by Dennis. She was quite cold towards him. And this was even when he was just a little child. So right from the beginning, he's learning from his mum that he's different and and that he's kind of repulsive in a way. Nilsson was an unhappy and brooding child, 
and would often wander off by himself. But there was one family member with whom Nielsen was close, his maternal grandfather, who worked as a North Sea fisherman. When he came back from sea, the grandfather would take him down to the beach and they'd walk up and down the beach and he'd tell him stories of what happened at sea. His grandfather was the one person he could relate to. But in 1951, Nielsen lost the one family member that he admired most. His mother kind of skirted around the topic and said, yeah, your grandfather's just not very well and he'll be back. And, and then when the funeral came around and the body was laid out, he, he kind of thought his grandfather was just asleep. So you've got this really traumatic event going on in, in his life and he's really struggling to, to make sense of what's going on. And he's feeling pretty rejected, really, because he's got this really close relationship with his grandfather. One minute he's there and one minute he's not. I firmly hold to this view that the death of his grandfather profoundly affected him. I'm utterly convinced that his idea of death and his idea of love were fused at that point. And after that, he could only love people who were dead. It wasn't just within his family that Nilsson felt like an outsider. As he grew older, he recognized his emerging homosexuality, and it brought him guilt. He came from an incredibly masculine community where men were alpha males and they got married and they had children and, and that was just what you did. So I think to come from those beginnings really did kind of shape that sense of shame he felt about his sexuality. Anxious to remove himself from family life and his rural hometown, Nielsen enrolled in the army at just 15 years old, says crime reporter Duncan Campbell. He'd had a difficult childhood um, and had wanted always to be in uniform, it would seem. He joined the army. He was in the Argyll and Sutherland Islanders. Nilsson served in the army for 11 years, traveling to different posts in Aden, now Yemen, West Germany, Norway, and Cyprus. Over his time serving, Nilsson hid his sexuality from his fellow soldiers. He also learned that he had a talent for butchering meat. In the time that Nilsson served in the army, he worked as a cook. And during this time, he learned how to, to butcher and, and dismember the carcasses of animals. And unfortunately, this is something that he came to draw upon again. Nilsson then began to show artistic talent of a different kind, but with an unusual and disturbing twist. He got interested in photography. He would get soldiers that he was in the army with to pretend they were dead, and he'd, he'd photograph them then. So it was a slow progression towards disaster, but anybody with a trained mind in psychological behaviour could have spotted very, very early on the development that was going forward. By December 1972, Nilsson had left the army and moved to London. He enrolled with the Metropolitan Police as a constable, but resigned the following December. A short time later, he got a job as a civil servant, helping other people find jobs. Unlike the insulated, conservative communities in Aberdeenshire where he'd grown up, 
London had an emerging gay community. Nilsson became a frequent face in the scene. I think Dennis Nilsson's homosexuality is quite a significant factor when we look at his case, um, because although homosexuality became legal during his lifetime, there was still quite a considerable stigma attached to it. Nilsson moves to London, a very vibrant, very busy part of the UK, and this is perhaps the place where he feels loneliest. He's a gay man, he's uh, frequenting gay bars and pubs and, and is part of that scene. Nilsson often engaged in casual flings and one-night stands. But in November 1975, he came across a man being bullied outside a bar. This man was David Gallican. Although Gallican was 10 years Nilsson's junior, the two immediately clicked. Soon after, the men moved into a flat together on Melrose Avenue. For a time, they were content, but the relationship didn't last. They got separate beds and started seeing other people, viewing each other as no more than roommates. He can't form anything more than a one-night stand, and I think that really does affect him quite badly. After 18 months, the relationship fizzled out, and Nielsen asked Gallican to leave the apartment. I think this is really significant because I think he's come to the conclusion that he quite likes having somebody else around the flat. He likes having a companion to spend time with. And Nilsson's a bit of a narcissist, so he likes having someone around who will kind of pander to him and, and reinforce him. So what he's got now is a void. There's a gap in his life. He's had a relationship and he wants another one. But unfortunately, he's not the kind of person who can develop a relationship so. So this is where we see things start to go spectacularly wrong. Lonely and desperate for affection, Nilsson's longing for company would soon turn deadly. On December 29, 1978, he met a 14-year-old boy named Stephen Holmes. And Nilsson knew there was only one way to guarantee the boy would stick around. Stephen Holmes was a very young boy, and he was trying to get himself something to drink at a pub in Cricklewood. Nilsson offered to, to help out with the drink and then brought him back to his flat. After a night of drinking, Nielsen realized he didn't want the boy to leave. Once Holmes was asleep, Nielsen took a necktie and choked the teenager before drowning him in a bucket of water. It was to be the beginning of a pattern for Nielsen, according to crime reporter Duncan Campbell and biographer Brian Masters. The modus operandi of Dennis Nielsen was very similar for most of his victims. They would be plied with drink. He would have a tie. By the time the victim was now drunk, almost comatose, going to sleep, he would put the tie round his neck and strangle him that way. And if they were unconscious but not dead, then he would drown them in a bath or a bucket. Nilsson then started a ritual that would become familiar. He washed Holmes's body and propped him up in the living room. He would get them out, and he would sit and watch television with them. Um, he would clean up the bodies. He would clean it, dry it, dress it, put it comfortably in a chair. He would speak to the corpse in the chair. These were his pretend friends. 
So what we've got going on here, that there isn't like massive sexual depravity. What he was creating was a picture of domesticity. He would sit there and watch television with them. Um, so he's killing for, for company, but in, in the most grotesque way. Nilsson kept Holmes's body under the floorboards of his apartment. He'd found a way of making friends that worked. And he quickly went out to find more company. But he didn't have the social skills to maintain a normal relationships in a way that wouldn't send people running for the hills. So the only way to keep people there was to kill them. In late 1979, Nilsson attempted a second murder. He met a young exchange student from China, and they went for drinks before going home together. Once they were at his apartment, Nielsen tied the young man's feet together and tried to strangle him. But the young man struggled and escaped. The police questioned Nielsen, but did not arrest him. When we look at the time that Nielsen's in London, I think homosexuality still is very much in the shadows at at that time. So there are particular parts of London um, where the gay scene is happening, but it's still quite underground. It's still something that's seen as, as seedy. However... Two months after his failed attempt, Nielsen would kill again. He met 23-year-old Canadian tourist Kenneth Ockenden in October. Essentially, he would frequent the, the gay pubs and gay bars and would meet men that he found attractive. He would meet men that he wanted to form relationships with. And they would go back to Nielsen's place. Ockenden was eager to agree to more free drinks, food, and a place to stay. Crime reporter Duncan Campbell says this was typical for Nilsson's targets. His chosen victims, not necessarily all homosexual, but all vulnerable, I think you could say, or susceptible to somebody offering them a bit of comfort or, or, or a meal or a drink or, or whatever. But he obviously had a tendency to go for handsome young men or people who made themselves available to at least just hang out with him for a while. With Ockenden, Nielsen decided to try out an old skill from his army days. Except this time, his subjects were no longer playing dead. He got out a camera and posed and photographed Ockenden's body. Six months later, Nielsen killed for a third time. He strangled and drowned 16-year-old runaway Martin Duffy. Nielsen kept both Kenneth's and Martin's bodies in his apartment together for as long as he could, storing them under the floorboards. He would keep them in different parts of his house or in the bath. And that's in complete contrast to the normal killer who wants to get rid of the body as quickly as possible, who doesn't want to be associated with it, who doesn't want any traces of it around. For three years, Nilsson carried out this ritual undetected. When the bodies under the floorboards began to rot, he would burn them in his yard. DCI Peter Jay, a detective who worked the case, says... He got away with it at um, Melrose Avenue because he was disposing of the bodies in-house. And having these bonfires in the middle of the night, like funeral pyres. And on the top of those bonfires, he'd put rubber tires to destroy the possibility of the smell of flesh. 
This continued at Melrose Avenue until Nielsen moved in 1981. He then lived in a top-floor flat on Cranley Gardens in Muswell Hill, North London. But the killings didn't stop. In May 1982, Nielsen met 21-year-old Carl Stotter at a pub in London known for its drag shows. Once again, Nielsen invited the young man back to his apartment for some drinks. Sauter later gave an account of what happened to the news. He fell asleep and woke up to find Nilsson strangling him. Sauter once again passed out and vaguely remembered hearing water running and feeling very cold. Nilsson had dragged him to the bath and was trying to drown him. Nilsson thought Stotter was dead, but when the youth came to, he no longer wanted to finish the act. Nielsen told him the story that he'd almost been strangled by the sleeping bag. Stotter left the apartment two days later. This deviation from his usual M.O. would eventually come back to haunt him. In May 1982, Dennis Nilsson had just moved apartments and gotten a promotion at his job as a civil servant. But in his private life, Nilsson had been carrying out murders of young men and storing their bodies in his apartment. It was a stark contrast to his public life. All the time that he's carrying out these killings, he's holding down a perfectly normal job. His colleagues at work would have no idea that Dennis Nilsson taking a day's sick leave was actually carrying out the hiding of a crime. All of us, to some extent, are two people. There's the one that we display, we show to even family and friends, and there's a secret one which we only ever admit to ourselves, and we try to keep it well, well hidden. When the other self came to the fore, it took possession of him. He was possessed by this other self, and he could not prevent that other self behaving the way it wanted to. The new apartment also brought new challenges to Nielsen's M.O. With his home now on the top floor, he had no place to set up a bonfire, so he needed a new way of disposing of his victims. He took to cutting the bodies up into pieces, boiling them in water, and then flushing the remains down the toilet. This was no easy task, says DCI Peter Jay. He was going to great lengths to uh, dispose of the bodies. For instance, he had a massive-sized saucepan. He could get a whole head in a saucepan, boiling it, and then breaking up the bones. And, of course, all the flesh was going down the drain, getting flushed away, never to be found again. But they would be found again. In February 1983, residents of Cranley Gardens in Muswell Hill complained about a blockage in the drains. And so a plumber was called in to investigate. And they found what looked like bits of flesh. Nilsson suggested that it could be somebody had flushed their Kentucky Fried Chicken out or something like that, and that would be the explanation for little bones and flesh. But the plumber wasn't so sure, and the following morning, he called in the police. 
they sent Detective Chief Inspector Peter Jay to investigate. My phone rang, and it was the uniform inspector in charge that particular day. And he said to me, could you possibly come up here? He said, I've got a bit of a problem. I'm not sure what I've got, but I'd like you to see it. And he showed me a, a drain with a, an inspection plate cover open. And uh, he pointed out that uh, some bits of flesh had been hauled out of the drain at the bottom. So I said, well, let's have another haul around inside the drain, get some anything else that's in there. And the scenes of crime officer that I had with me managed to pull out three or four pieces of flesh, each about four inches long, an inch wide, and three little bones with a knuckle at each end. And when I looked at them, I thought these bones had probably come from a human hand. DCIJ took the remains to Charing Cross Hospital. Resident pathologist Professor David Bowen confirmed their suspicions. The fine hairs on the piece of skin told him it was from a neck. He said, it is, it's human. And um, he said, by pure luck, you've bought, brought me a piece of neck off the neck and your victim has been strangled. He said, there's a clear ligature mark on this piece of flesh. And I looked at him and I said, you sure you've not been watching too much TV? And he said, no, it's as clear as a bell. He said, this is human. So that only meant one thing to me, that somebody must have been murdered and flushed down the toilet. The detective would soon find it was more than just someone who was murdered. Meanwhile, an astounded DCIJ drove back to Cranley Gardens. He waited outside all day until Nilsson returned home from work. My first introductory words to him were, I'm Detective Chief Inspector Jay from Hornsey Police Station. I've come about your drains. And he looked at me and he said, since when have police been interested in blocked drains? I said, well, you take me up in your flat and I'll tell you. And you could smell immediately the um, decomposing flesh. I said to him, look, your drains were blocked with human remains. And he looked at me and he said, oh my God, how awful. And I just pushed my face a little bit nearer to his and said, don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? And he said, okay, it's in plastic bags in the front bedroom. Even at that point, his demeanor didn't change at all. He was just as he was when he came in the front door. He was okay. Maybe the game's up. Um, and he was relaxed about it. Nielsen strangely didn't argue when confronted about the murders. Forensic psychologist Dr. Yardley theorizes why. Well, Dennis Nilsson, when he was found out, he was very calm and very, very cool and very collected because he was an intelligent man. He knew that, that one day he would be found out, that this would all come to light. And I think he kind of made his peace with that long before he was actually caught. He described the day of his arrest as the day help arrived. And I don't think most criminals would describe being finally stopped from their murders or whatever as the day help arrived. DCIJ took Nilsson to the police station. But on the way, he found out that he hadn't just arrested a one-time murderer. 
he had a serial killer in his custody. So we walked him down to the car. I told him I was arresting him. So I drove the car back, and then Steve McCusker was obviously thinking to himself about all the body parts that were in so many different bags. And he popped the question to Nielsen, are we talking here about one body or two? And Nielsen said, neither. He said, I think it's 15 or 16. And I can remember the steering wheel sort of shaking in my hands. And it was just uh, the shock of, of hearing that instant response. On February 9th, 1983, police detained Dennis Nielsen. It was around this time that author Brian Masters made contact with Nielsen. Masters received permission to visit Nielsen's home in Cranley Gardens and remembers it well. Shortly after his arrest, after I'd made connection with him, I saw the grotty kitchen, which was really ghastly, and the wardrobes, and in the wardrobes were plastic bags, or had been plastic bags. I think what I remember most was the squalid nature of the kitchen because the pots had grease around the edges. And, of course, one now knows what that grease was. It was human flesh. That showed me the depths of depravity of which human beings are capable. News of the arrest and rumours of what was discovered in Nielsen's apartment made headlines across the country. We had the press descending on us from all different angles, even though we had a blackout in the police station, which caused chaos. The press were at the front door, the back door, on the phones. They were up on my first floor window of my office. They had a metal bar up against the window with a microphone on it. It just brought everything to a standstill. Anyway, we had a press conference, a very, very brief one. We just told them something to get rid of them if we possibly could. And then we were able to sort of placate them and promise that we would release what we could when we could. And then we were able to get on with our first proper interview with Nielsen. Police had evidence he killed someone, but unless they could connect him to something specific, the law dictated Nielsen should be let go. We had a murderer in custody, serial killer. We didn't know who he'd killed. We hadn't got a clue. And we weren't going to find out unless we got the truth out of him. We knew that the clock was ticking and that we had to charge him within 48 hours. Luckily, the forensics team searching Nielsen's home took fingerprints from one of the victim's hands. It belonged to his last victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Sinclair had been missing since January 26, 1983. Authorities formally charged Nilsson with Sinclair's murder on February 11, 1983. The police interrogated Nilsson. Like he had in the car with DCIJ, Nilsson spoke freely. He confessed to his crimes one by one. He gave us a very, very brief description in, a, in an hour or so of, of what had happened. We had told him that we were going to go through one victim at a time, one victim per interview, because we knew it was going to take at least two hours per victim because we had to get everything possible from him so that we could identify the bodies or identify the victims. A lot of them we didn't have bodies for. 
So he was able to tell us nicknames. Uh, occasionally he would give us a name. Nielsen talked about his first victim, Stephen Holmes, who he murdered in late 1979. He told officers he'd kept Stephen's body under the floorboards for eight months before it began to decay. Nielsen cut Stephen's body into pieces and then constructed a makeshift bonfire in the garden. There, he burned the remains of the young boy. Here's forensic pathologist Stuart Hamilton. So the problem that somebody like Dennis Nielsen would have is not so much the murder, it's what do you do with the body afterwards? You have to try and dispose of it somehow. And that's not easy. It's not easy to burn them. It's not easy to dismember them. It's not easy just to leave them somewhere and hope they're not found. He had to find a way to make sure these bodies weren't found so he could carry on with what he was doing. Nilsson confessed to killing at least a dozen other men. Billy Sutherland in 1980, 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow in September 1981. But relying on the killer's memory of events made the investigation difficult. Nielsen would tell us that he had murdered a young man of about 20 years old who had a tattoo around his neck and he'd strangled him and he'd give us a full detailed account of how it all happened. But we had absolutely no idea at all as to who he was talking about. You can't really charge a prisoner with killing a person unknown. We had to be absolutely sure that when we named a victim, it couldn't possibly be anybody else. That was a mammoth undertaking. Often, Nilsson couldn't remember their names or even much about them. When he was telling the police, confessing, some of them he identified by strange memories. One he described as a skinhead that he met uh, in the West End. Another was a young man from Northern Ireland. The omelette boy. This is the man who he cooked an omelette for before he killed him. The omelette boy was 27-year-old Graham Allen. Unlike many of Nilsson's other victims, Allen was a married man with a family. His son, Shane Levine, remembers the day his father disappeared. I was only seven years old. My father was a drug addict. He wanted money for drugs. And there was a bit of a fight, a bit of an altercation. And my father was screaming for money through the window. My mother said no. And my mother's last words was to tell him to never come back again. And he left that night and he never came back. My mother, she was sure that something had happened. It was quite a violent relationship. And they would often split up or have arguments. He would disappear, but he would always make contact. And this had gone on for weeks, months, there was no contact. And my mother thought the worst at that moment. Alan met Dennis Nilsson hailing a cab on Shaftesbury Avenue in London. Nilsson invited him home and cooked Graham an omelette before strangling him from behind as he ate. Parts of Graham's body were recovered from Nilsson's drains. I heard my mother screaming as I came down the road, came back from school, and and the, when I got home, the police were 
inside our house and they told my mother some bad news. My mother was very upset. They told my mother that they had found a skull in North London in this house of horrors and that the dental records had identified it as my father. Nielsen eventually confessed to 15 murders in all, 12 at his first home on Melrose Avenue and three at his apartment in Cranley Gardens. But even the number Nielsen gave was in question, since he couldn't quite piece them all together. But he certainly said to us, I think if you hadn't caught me now, it wouldn't have been 15, it would have been 150. And I think he was probably right, actually. It would be up to DCIJ and his team to make everything coherent for the judge. Dennis Nilsson's trial date was set for October, and so they set about the arduous task of preparing all the evidence. But soon, they had a new problem. Nilsson's defense team was going to plead insanity. Now, investigators had to prove not only what Nilsson did, but that he knew exactly what he was doing at the time. Otherwise, there was a good chance that a killer could walk free. In a committal hearing on May 26, 1983, serial murderer Dennis Nilsson's trial date was set for October. As the grisly facts surrounding the story hit the press, the British public was left stunned. Once it became clear exactly what Dennis Nilsson had done, there was inevitably a lot of horror. First of all, these vulnerable young men being taken to his house and killed. That was horror enough. Then there was keeping the bodies for so long, another horrific thing. Then there was boiling up body parts and disposing of bits of them down the toilet and so on, another horror thing. Then there was the sheer scale of the number of murders that he carried out. Dennis Nilsson was something out of a completely different world seemed. So the the press reaction, the public reaction was one of revulsion but also a kind of horrible fascination as well. That fascination served the prosecution well. Nilsson's defense was building a case to prove he was insane. But the enhanced media coverage produced a trio of key witnesses for the prosecution. Three young men Douglas Stewart, Paul Nobbs, and Carl Stoddard came forward to say Nilsson attacked each of them. After gathering evidence from the crime scenes in both apartments, police brought charges against Nilsson for the six murders. The trial began at London's criminal court, the Old Bailey, on October 24, 1983. Brian Masters remembers the defendant's demeanor. I went to see him every day during the trial in the cells underneath the old bailey. And the one thing which struck me most about him was this disorder, this imbalance, that he had no idea that what he'd done was important. He knew, of course, that it was wrong to kill people, but he didn't know why it mattered so much. Why did people make a fuss about it? The three witnesses gave their chilling statements. Stoddard recalled how Nilsson eventually let him go after trying to drown him and keeping him in the apartment for three days. 
But even after the statements and Nielsen's lengthy confessions, the defense team decided to plead not guilty to all the charges against him. The defense wanted to plead guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility when we got to the Old Bailey. Uh, but we weren't happy about that at all because we had tried to find some sort of personality disorder. We had a psychiatrist from King's College in London look at him in depth. And he said he couldn't find any evidence of a personality disorder at all. Forensic psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says there were psychiatrists on both sides who gave their opinions on Nilsson's state of mind. Well, when we look at insanity pleas, essentially we're looking at how much control that person had over their behaviour. Now, when you look at some of Nielsen's behaviour, you would think, you know, automatically, well, this is the behaviour of somebody who isn't normal. It's, it's somebody who is a little bit mad. But actually, he knew what he was doing. He was somebody who was not labouring under some kind of psychosis. He was intelligent. He was articulate. He wrote reams and reams of pages about his crimes. So, so he was very much conscious of what was going on. The court also heard excerpts from the extensive interviews conducted by police with Nielsen and testimony from the survivors. It was left to the jury to decide whether or not he had the capability to form an intention to kill. And he was found guilty of murder on all counts. When the jury came back into the box and the foreman of the jury stood up to give his verdict, um, there was a feeling in the courtroom that, thank goodness, that's over. We, we can go home and be cleansed now. We've listened to so much squalid evidence that we feel contaminated slightly. So everybody wanted to go home and wash. On November 4th, 1983, Sir David Croom Johnson sentenced Dennis Nilsson to life in prison. He would have to serve at least 25 years before he would be considered for parole. In 1989, it was decided that Nilsson's sentence would be a whole-life tariff, meaning he would never be released. He knew perfectly well he would be found guilty, and he knew he deserved it. He knew he should be. I think he was secretly relieved that he didn't have to make decisions anymore. All the decisions he'd made in the last few years were wrong. Now in prison, decisions would be made for him. In a news report, someone finally had something to say in Nilsson's defense. His mother, Betty Scott, on whom he blamed everything in his biography. She said, I don't understand how this can go on. Something must have happened to him because it's not my Dennis that's doing it. He's always my son, and that's why I want him to know that we're all concerned about him. And I just hope he gets some help. On September 13, 2018, after almost 45 years in prison, Dennis Nilsson died of a blood clot while still behind bars, perhaps providing a sense of justice for family members of some of Nilsson's victims. But decades later, it seems incomprehensible that Nilsson was able to operate seemingly unnoticed. I think what's probably terrifying about this case is the fact that Nilsson was so ordinary. 
you begin to think to yourself, how many more of them are there around? How many more Dennis Nielsens are there around who are disposing of the bodies of their victims, never to be found again? The vulnerable young men Nielsen specifically targeted slipped from this world almost unnoticed. And most tragically, we may never fully understand why Nielsen stole their lives. I think one of the reasons Dennis Nielsen got away with it for so long was that even at that time, which is post the legalization of homosexuality, the disappearance of young men who were gay was not treated with the same amount of respect and energy as the police, I think, would treat it nowadays. A lot of the names of Dennis Nilsson's victims remain completely unknown to most people today. Um, and it was that anonymity that allowed him to continue. He was just very, very different. I've never met anybody like him before in my life. I couldn't really get to understand him. I mean, you deal with people as, as police officers and you, you in, mentally you stick them in the um, evil box or the sort of cry for help box. There's always a box you can stick them in in, in your own mind. You, you make up your own mind about people when you deal with them in the police. But Nielsen, I never got to the bottom of. I couldn't understand at all. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregge. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beal and Janelle Patel. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, we'd appreciate it if you'd leave us a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... A terrifying duo spreads fear across London. The pair was dubbed the Railway Rapists. Until things escalated and they became the Railway Killers. Once I started to really delve into it and really investigate it, I realised I was completely unprepared for just how horrific a case like this actually is. Unlike police officers who have all kinds of defences built up over years and years to deal with these sort of things. I did wander into this as a bit of an innocence, and it does still really haunt me. But only one of the two was in prison. John Duffy refused to give up his partner for nearly 10 years, but that was about to change. It was almost as if he considered this was an act of betrayal of what was a unique and wicked bond uh, for decades. Well, they, these were so poles apart now across the courtroom. <laughs>